Last week, we introduced our new sermon series, I Am. And in so doing, we talked about God's name, I Am, being his name forever. Uh, in other words, meaning that God is like no other. And of course, Jesus also identified himself in the New Testament as the I Am, saying he is God in oneness with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Well, last week we introduced to the concept that humans can violate the second commandment of the Ten Commandments by worshiping the one true God in a false way, making God lesser, a lesser God than the great I am, making God out to be in our image. And we do this by the way we think God should be acting or what God should be doing or saying in our present era. Now, following last week's message on this matter, one of our church council members shared with me and our missions board chair a quote from a Christian woman who's an author and a speaker who said, it's safe to assume you have made God in your image when God hates everyone you do. Now this is the very reason we're having this sermon series right now because so many people are making God out to be in their own image. Churches across the nation are facing tremendous divisions within their ranks because of differing views on the COVID-19 pandemic and because of all the social tensions regarding law enforcement and white privilege and racism and of course throw in the recent political election for president and all the political tensions and is it possible that people on all sides of these issues are projecting God to be in their image because God must agree with them after all because God despises all the same people that they despise and hates all the same people they hate. You know, just last Sunday at our 8.30 a.m. worship service, we had a family visit who attends a covenant church in central Minnesota. They happened to be up in our area snowmobiling, and they heard uh, about a ch covenant church located over here. So they came over and, and worshiped with us here for the first time. And after getting to know them just a little bit, they shared with me that their church right now is on the brink of splitting over political differences. They said that people are sharing their views politically all over Facebook, including their pastor. And their pastor has even uh, preached from the pulpit his political views, even telling people who he voted for in the recent presidential election. Well, I ended up spending an hour with this couple outside of church trying to help them out a little bit. And they have been involved in this church, been members of this church for 15 years. In fact, the husband happens to be at the present time the treasurer of this church. He's on their leadership team and they are crushed by all the fighting and the quarreling and the, you know, the disagreeing over politics that's going on in their church right now. And one of the pastors in our church here, having overheard some of the couple, what the couple was saying, said to me later on, who would have ever thought that we would live in a time where the gospel would be the least offensive thing that we can talk about in church? It should be the most offensive you know, churches and parachurch ministries in these times are all returning to the central issue, to the gospel. Just Let's just talk about Jesus, not about all these other things that we often see so differently in, our, in the culture. You know, the famous Christian Missionary Alliance theologian and pastor, A.W. Tozer, from the earlier portion of the 20th century, may have said it best when it comes to the cultural divisions that can creep into the church he said that you never tune 100 p 
pianos by tuning the first one and then tuning the second one from the first one and the third one from the second one and the fourth one from the third one and going on down the line and then somehow think when you come to the end that they're all going to sound the same and play the same musical notes. Right now there are Christians in most churches across our nation complaining that other Christians aren't playing their musical notes. The ones that everyone should be playing according to the God of their perception. No, A.W. Tozer says, when you tune 100 pianos and expect them to sound the same, you have to use the same tuning fork for them all. And this is what we're trying to do here at Mission Covenant Church. We're looking to God's word to teach us about who Jesus is, the one who's the good news that will bring great joy for all the people. In other words, we're asking everyone to listen to the same tuning fork so that we can all be on the same sheet of music. With that said, we now find ourselves in John chapter six, where we notice the first of the seven I am statements that John lists in his gospel. As, as Gracie just shared with us earlier from John six forty eight, I am the bread of life, which Jesus gives as a declaration of his divinity and also as an invitation to believe in him. Jesus invites us to believe in him. And all the I am statements that we're looking at in the gospel of John offer the same invitation to believe in Jesus. And so does the I am statement that John lists in his general letter, his epistle, Revelation in 1.8, where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, in John 6, in this invitation to believe in Jesus, we find that some people look to Jesus for all the wrong Reasons. Now, this chapter, John 6, is completely, basically, predominantly about bread. And I know bread in our culture has really hit hard times. You know, bread is full of carbs, and people will tell you that, you know, you've got to be careful in your diet not to eat too much bread, or really, I've given up bread completely because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dieting carefully, and they'll give you all those kinds of things. Well, just on the, in defense of bread, Vitamin B12 comes from bread too, which helps you digest your food. So if you're not having grains and cereals in your diet, you're probably gonna have some complications with your digestive system, but, but enough about that. Who doesn't like bread? It's smell, it's taste, it's texture. Who doesn't like bread warm, fresh, out of the oven? You know, some of my fondest childhood memories are from going to my grandma Nelson's house and she baked fresh bread every single day in her wood-fired oven. We never bought, you know, never ate store-bought bread at my grandmother's house. And many times they were warm buns, fresh from the oven. And we could put butter on them and homemade jelly. And literally, it felt like they melted in your mouth. They were that scrumptious. Well, bread is a staple of life. It's the embodiment of nourishment. It is the most wise, widely consumed food in the entire world. In fact, seared into my memory from my missions trip in 1990 to Romania was seeing people in every city we went to lined up for blocks, standing in lines that would be blocks long, waiting for their one and a half loaves of bread that they were rationed per month from the government that they could pick up at their local bakery. It was like gold to them. 
Well, history teaches us that bread has been part of humans' diets from very early on. People would raise grain, they would dry the grain, they would grind it between stones, they would mix the flour with water, they would make patties to cook on hot stones. And the Bible as well mentions bread over 400 times. And the very place of Jesus' birth references bread because it's Bethlehem, which in the Hebrew language is Beit Lahem. Beit is the word for house. Lahem is the word for bread. The house of bread is where Jesus was born. So for many reasons, when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, it led to a lot of people to be curious about that. Now in John 6, 1 through 15, we have the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it turns out that there had been this great crowd that was following Jesus. And he sits down on the mountainside on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. I believe we have a map of that. It's near Bethsaida. And today this area would be known as Golan Heights. And this is the account that tells us that a time came uh, for people to eat. It was, it was mealtime. And the disciples figured out, humanly speaking, that it was impossible to feed a crowd of this magnitude, especially on the spur of the moment. And all the disciples could come up with was a young boy's five small barley loaves and two fish. Now we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Now notice it says men were there. It's not telling you how many women or children were there. Bible scholars say there could have been 15,000. This miracle could have involved up to 20,000 people that were being fed here. Verses 11 through 13. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And there's a lot of symbolism in that because 12 is an important number in the Bible. There's, there's 12 tribes in ancient Israel. There were 12 apostles in the New Testament times. And the fact that these baskets were full and still abundant uh, is significant. Now I have to tell you, that liberal theologians try to explain this miracle away in the Bible. And they do it by saying that what Jesus really accomplished here is that he talked everybody into sharing their lunches that they had brought. And so everybody had something to eat because everybody there shared their, from their packed lunch that they'd brought for that day, and then everybody had something to eat. Well, a person would have to completely disregard the teaching of the Bible to come up with an interpretation like that. Because look at what verses 14 and 15 say. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This miracle was so tremendous that they wanted to enthrone him at that very moment. And Jesus slipped away because it was not his appointed time. Now, if that wasn't enough, there's a miracle that gets thrown in here as well, where Jesus walks on the water from verses 16 through 24. And this is the account here where the disciples now leave in a boat uh, in the evening 
uh, right at dusk, they take off from that Bethsaida region. We'll put the map up again. And now they're going to go across from the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. They're going to go now to the northeast side to a town called Capernaum. And Jesus doesn't get in the boat with them. They go by one boat and a storm comes up when they're out. They go three, four miles and they're rowing and these are rough, turbulent waters. And then in the darkness of the night, Jesus comes walking on the water toward them. And they're terrified, of course. And he gets close to them. He says, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then he gets into the boat with them. Well, it turns out in the morning that the people all over this region of Bethsaida were looking for Jesus because he did this incredible miracle of feeding all these thousands of people the day before. And they're looking for him and they knew he didn't get into the boat and they don't find him there. So they go searching elsewhere. And here's where we pick up the account in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves that had, and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of his approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Do you know that 40% of the food in our nation right now in the United States of America goes to waste? Some spoils before it can ever be harvested because of storms or natural disasters or poor conditions at the time of harvest. Other food does not get purchased in time to go to food shares like we have here at our church next Saturday morning or to go to homeless shelters so it has to be thrown out. Uh, others leftovers from restaurants in normal years, not a year like this, but in normal years, or even in our own home. What happens to our leftovers? If we don't get to them right away, they get what? They get thrown out. Jesus says, don't devote your entire life to working for food like that, that spoils, that can get thrown out. And what he's saying here is that you're only concerning yourselves with your physical well-being and you're neglecting your spiritual life. You're going through life only looking for physical nourishment, and you're neglecting your spiritual nourishment. And yes, Jesus does care for the less fortunate and the downtrodden, but he didn't come into this world mainly to give bread, but to be bread, which is why in this chapter he tells everyone who will listen to him that I am the bread of life. Sadly, the crowds weren't hungry for what Jesus was offering. Okay, they say, if you truly are who you say you are, prove it. Give us a sign. Verses 30 and 31. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now we're getting down to the heart of the issue. Our ancestors ate the bread of heaven in the wilderness, manna. And it's written about in the law, the law of Moses. Look at Jesus' response, verses 32 and 33. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, Moses didn't do that for you. God did it. And this is the same God that has sent me to give life 
to the world. Verses 34 through 40. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen, seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last days. Now, did you notice verse 35 sounds a little bit familiar when I read through that? Do you remember back to chapter 4 in the Gospel of John, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? And what was he telling her there? He says, if you drink this living water that Jesus was offering, you'll never thirst again. You know, people long for love. People long for security. They long for purpose and happiness and joy and peace and protection in life. Look at our own culture right now. People are so upset because their lives have been turned upside down. They want to go back to normal to the way things used to be. They want stability instead of all the upheaval. They want a future that is clear, not a future that's so foggy. How long is this going to last? People keep asking. Businesses are shuttered. States are locked down. Families are sheltering in place. There's no personal human contact or human touch because of social distancing. We can't shake hands here. We can't hug here at church right now because we got to stay socially distant. Law enforcement agencies are being gutted. The Minneapolis Police Department alone right now is functioning with 200 less police officers than at the time of the tragic, inhumane death of George Floyd. Law enforcement response times are tremendously lagging right now. And there are violent protests everywhere in our nation, including in last month's, uh, na our nation's capital. And people are just longing to be delivered from this. So they cry out to the government, deliver us. And the government's response is, we'll print more money. Let's spend our way out of this problem. Let's throw money at these social illnesses. And let's also give all the power in our nation to one political party. They will know how to fix everything. Well, one political party had all the power in 2016 and 2017 as well. And they didn't know how to fix everything. The truth is, just like in Jesus' time, people are looking for help in all the wrong places. People are looking everywhere but to the source of deliverance and fulfillment, Jesus. And these may all appear, these things I've described for you today may all appear to be just physical and social problems. But at the core, they're all spiritual issues. And Jesus humbly and simply invites us to believe in him, to follow him during this time. Do you believe in him? Or are you seeking fulfillment in your life elsewhere? Are you resting right now in the arms of your Lord and Savior? Are you casting all your cares and anxieties upon him 
as the scriptures instruct us to do? Or are you kind of living your life right now in fear? Are your concerns for life only in the physical realm? Your life, your health, your circumstances, your resources, your needs, your livelihood, your family, your, 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 your. Or are you concerned with the work of God in this world? And what's God doing? See, this is an important distinction because the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. And this means in all the circumstances of life, in all the ups and downs in our nation and in our lives, in all the joys and all the heartaches and all the victories and all the defeats and losses, in all, it means all the time to believe in the one he sent. You know, this great salvation that I've just been highlighting is precious to people who are saved and who are being saved. As 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's precious. But now, but know this, Jesus' invitation to believe in him is offensive to some people. It's offensive as 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, to those who are perishing. Listen to verses 41 to 52 here. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? We know this guy. He grew up right over there. We know his parents. We know his siblings. What? This is nuts. What do you mean? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last days. And it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who's from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. And your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus clearly explained what he was describing earlier on. That you have to believe in him. You have to believe in the one who sent. That's what he's talking about, taking Jesus into your life. That's what he's describing for us there. Well, verses 60 through 61 go on to say, On hearing it, many of the disciples said, This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And then verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The word of the gospel, to believe in Jesus, is offensive to many people to those who are perishing. And look at how Christianity is being treated right now, even in our own nation. In America, where you have the freedom of religion, voices are being silenced 
and even vilified. Christians are simply being bullied and harassed, accused of hate speech and promoting hatred for simply not embracing the prevailing cult culture philosophies. If we don't embrace that, then, then we're, we're full of hate. Well, perhaps a day is coming when because of the offensive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, think about this, that churches will no longer in America be allowed to live stream their services or even use social media. Now, I, I do not know what the future holds, and please know I am not a conspiracy theorist in no way, shape, or form. I just know that biblically, historically, and internationally, the gospel has been offensive to many, and there have been countless attempts over the years to shut down the transmission of the gospel. So who's to say it won't happen on our shores as well? Again, verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, and disciples means followers too. So a lot of people were following Jesus, but it doesn't mean they were loyal followers or loyal disciples. So these followers of Jesus, said, he said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now, have you noticed some of the major themes throughout the chapter uh, in John 6 here as we've read this together today regarding Jesus as the bread of life? Themes like the sovereignty of God, you know, God being the one who's in control, despite what the circumstances on earth may look like. Did you notice God being in control even in the midst of human resistance and human autonomy? Did you see God's sovereignty here as we read these verses? Trumping humanity's people's free will. And by the way, did you also notice the discussion about people coming to faith in God and that this whole thing that's going on here in earth is all about God's harvest and he will not fail to bring it in? And have you also noticed that this chapter points out that none of us get to come to God on our terms? or on our timeline, as verse 65 just summarized, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. This is a God in chapter 6 here that we're talking about who cannot be controlled, who cannot be manipulated, cannot be denied or relegated to irrelevance. This is the great I Am, who's the sovereign Lord of the universe, the bread of life, who's the source of all true nourishment and fulfillment. Verse 66 again. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Verse 67. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One. You're not going to believe, you're not going to leave too, are you? You know, 
All this craziness going on? You're not going to believe too, leave too, are you? Jesus asks. No, Peter says. And Peter often was a spokespeople per person for the entire you know, group of disciples, the 12. No, you and you alone have the words of life. Where should we go? No one else has that. You alone have that and possess the words of life. You are the Holy One of God. True disciples, true followers of Jesus, hunger for spiritual life, knowing that Jesus possesses the words of life and that he can satisfy and nourish every dimension of our lives for eternity. Jesus invites us to believe in him. And I ask you today, do you believe in this God? Would you pray with me, please? God, our Father, again, it's with gratitude in our hearts that we pray right now, thanking you for the privilege to look at your word, which is before us, written in our language, recorded for us so we can all have the same tuning fork, so we don't all have to look to all these other sources in our life uh, to understand what truth and life is all about. God, you've given us your word, and in your word you tell us about Jesus, the I am, the, the, the second member of the Trinity, God Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The I am who is the bread of life is the one that you sent, the one that you call upon us to believe in. And God, I pray that in all the events of our lives, in all the turmoil of what's going on in our culture, that we would believe in you and we'd follow you through all of that. We wouldn't be listening to all these other crazy voices that are out there. We'd listen to you. We would tune our lives to you. And God, we know that you have good things in store for your church. You are advancing the gospel in this world. And God, I pray that we'll be part of that mission in Jesus' name. Amen.